recognize where we've been and kind of contextualize where we're going, I thought I'd give a bit of a rundown of the first couple chapters of the book of James. See, in the first chapter, James begins his book by exhorting Jewish Christians to find joy in their trials and in their persecution because these trials bring about perseverance and character and draw them closer and closer to Christ. And then he exhorts his audience to do the stuff of the gospel and to grow in their faith through doing the good stuff that God has commanded them to do, caring for widows and orphans in their affliction and keeping oneself holy. And that wraps up chapter 1. And in verse 2, James exhorts his audience to treat everybody, regardless of who they are, with dignity and respect. Because we're all created in the image of of God. We're all sinners. And to discriminate against anyone is sin. And then James moves on to describe how faith without works is dead. And last week, Tim talked about the importance of our speech and the words we use and the importance of taming our tongues. So the overall thrust of James is that you have this faith in Jesus. You say you want to follow him. I want to show you how. In other words, James wants us to put our theology, what we believe about God, into motion and into fruitful action. So this takes us to James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. So if you have your copy of God's word, please turn with me there. And we'll see in this passage, James describes two different kinds of wisdom. The wisdom of the earth and the wisdom that comes from God. Now let me say a couple words about this passage here. It's one of those passages that sets up very two paths, very two distinct paths that you can follow, two very distinct ways of being. Either you can follow one way, or you can follow another. I was at a conference recently where a pastor friend of mine told this really, really interesting story about a dude named Carl Henry. And for those of you who don't know, Carl Henry was a leading evangelical theologian uh, in the 20th century between the 40s and all the way up till his passing, I think, in 2003. And he served as the editor of Christianity Today, and he served as a seminary professor as well. And my friend enjoyed getting to know Carl Henry, this giant of the faith. He was known for his intellect, for his wisdom, and his humble spirit. Back in the 80s, there was a controversy with a televangelist that kind of shook up the evangelical world. He had cheated on his wife, and there was this whole money scandal. I think he embezzled from the ministry, stole millions. And NBC, you know the TV network, called up Carl Henry and said that we want to fly you out to New York so we can hear your take on the issues that have been surrounding uh, this televangelist and his ministry. Now, I want to pause that story right now. And I'm going to get back to it towards the end of my sermon. But just remember, Carl Henry's invited to go speak at, on NBC, you know, the national broadcasting channel or whatever. And what he does is pretty magnificent. And I'll talk about that at the end. But for right now, please read with me James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, Considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, 
impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll illuminate your word and open our hearts and minds to the truths that you want us to hear in your presence this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. A lot of people throughout history have been very, very skeptical of the book of James. And one of the reasons people have been skeptical is it feels kind of like a random kind of choppy book. First he talks about going through trials, then he talks about uh, not judging anybody, then he talks about doing the stuff, then he contradicts Paul with this whole faith works thing, then he talks about the tongue, and now he talks about wisdom. So it sometimes feels as though it's this choppy, kind of random, unorganized book. But James is actually following a logical progression for where he was just a few verses ago. You see, James was talking about using the tongue in a healthy and constructive way as opposed to using it in an unhealthy and destructive way. And in the first 12 verses of James chapter 3, he's targeting false teachers who use their words to lead people astray and bring damage to the body of Christ. And that's why he kicks off this chapter by saying, hey, don't become a teacher because you're going to be judged more more harshly and more severely because your words have power. And he goes on to ask in our verse right here, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? And he alludes to someone who has a wise way with words, who uses words in a healthy and responsible way. But he kind of turns the table on his audience a little bit. See, he's using a rhetorical strategy here where he leads you to think he's going to say something along the lines of, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him speak well with his words, or let his words be pure and holy. Nope. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. While his readers would have expected him to continue talking about the tongue and continue elaborating on that point of his teaching, James elects to go back to his overarching theme of showing your faith and your theology by performing good deeds. And in James's mind, just because you can spout off some good thinking and you have this aura of Yoda-like wisdom doesn't mean anything if you don't have the works to back up your words. And for James to be wise, to be wise, it doesn't mean that you have a whole lot of knowledge. No, for James, it means you have the capability to live a good life and you do good deeds in a very humble manner. And as I've said before, wisdom in biblical perspective really means skillful living. You read through the book of Proverbs, you see very, very concrete instructions on how to live your life. Sure, they're poetic, yes, and they're interesting to read, yes, but the Proverbs call you to a higher standard of living, living your life with skill. And in a biblical sense, wisdom means living your life with the skill that comes only from knowing God. So the wise person is one who has abundant knowledge about living a good life and actually lives a good, humble life to prove his inner wisdom. Now on the flip side of that, however, the unwise person is the one who does something good and trumpets his good deeds to everyone else. And that's what James goes on to say in the next verse, verse 14. 
He says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. And that verse kind of reads a little bit awkward, so I'm going to give you my own translation from the Greek, all right? Don't be selfish, don't be ambitious or prideful about your earthly wisdom, because if you do so, you deny true wisdom even more openly. In other words, because you're full of pride and because you boast of your wisdom, you're telling me that you're not wise at all. Because wisdom is humble and is expressed not, in, not only in the words that you say, but in the deeds you perform. And James is to, quick to point out that wisdom isn't envious and it isn't selfish. It isn't ambitious. He elaborates on, on that in the next couple of verses, which we'll see in a couple of minutes. So we see in these couple verses that James believes that wisdom isn't just the status of knowing good stuff. It's living your life in humility and doing wise deeds devoid of selfish ambition. And James goes on to compare and contrast these two different kinds of wisdom. The one that comes from the earth and the one that comes from up above. He says this in verse 15. Such wisdom... You know, that's bitter, that's envious, that's selfishly ambitious. It doesn't come down from heaven, but is earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. So good wisdom is wisdom that expresses itself in living a good and fruitful life in Christ. But bad wisdom is the wisdom that is envious and selfishly ambitious. And this is the kind of wisdom that seeks its own good, that looks out for itself and its own priorities at the expense of others. But more than that, it's filled with pride. And we know that pride is the opposite of humility, which characterizes good wisdom. And James says that this bitter, envious, self-seeking pride is earthly, meaning it comes from the world, from culture, from sin. This isn't where true wisdom should be coming from. He says it's unspiritual, meaning it's devoid of reflection on higher things or higher morals or ethics or spiritual principles. And finally, it's demonic, meaning it's actively opposed to God and, and basically comes from the devil, essentially, is what he's saying. Now think about the order that James uses. The stuff that masquerades as wisdom is earthly, so it kind of comes from our culture. It's unspiritual. It's devoid of any kind of spiritual reflection or anything. And it's demonic, meaning it comes from the devil. It's the lowest of the low. Now, it's easy to say that, you know, but what does it mean exactly? What does this selfish, ambitious, envious, bitter wisdom look like? He says this in verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, you know that bad wisdom? There you find disorder and every evil practice. So that wisdom of the world is earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's empowered by the devil. And it looks like disorder and chaos in every evil practice. Now that's kind of a little bit of a broad kind of take. So let me kind of tease it out a little bit for you. When James says disorder, he doesn't mean disorganization, okay? He doesn't mean things are a little bit sloppy. He means you don't have your priorities straight. And he's not referring to the individual here. He's referring to the entire Christian community at large. And what does disorder look like in the local church? It means focusing on the wrong things. And the thing that is disorder can sometimes be really, really hard to notice. 
When you become used to disorder and focusing on the wrong things in the Christian community, you grow numb and you're desensitized from knowing what you should focus on and what you shouldn't. And that's why this kind of earthly wisdom is demonic, because the more the church focuses on things that aren't the gospel of Christ, that aren't advancing the kingdom of God, the easier it is for your flesh and for demonic forces to creep in and distract you from what really, really matters. Most churches split because of silly things. And the typical example is a church that splits over carpet. You've heard the example, right? I've even heard of churches that split because of musical preference. You guys use drums in worship? Heretics. I've even heard of churches that that separate over very, 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 very small points of doctrine that don't really affect anything. That's earthly wisdom right there, to cause divisiveness and disorder when it's absolutely unnecessary. Because earthly wisdom says that you need to fight for your views and for your perspective, and everybody must conform to your particular way of being. But that's pride coming out there. That's that selfish ambition that characterizes the wisdom of the world and distracts the church from her mission to preach the gospel and make disciples of everybody. And the good wisdom that James describes is marked by humility and a focus on the right, proper things. And this bad earthly wisdom that James describes is marked by every evil practice. And simply put, if you're full of true wisdom, you're living a good life and you're doing good things for the kingdom. But if you're driven by the priorities of earthly wisdom, you're destroying yourself and the people around you. That's why James points out in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, which Tim talked about last week, that the tongue is the powerful facilitator of both good wisdom and bad wisdom. It can bear fruit, and it can bring nourishment to people around you, or it can destroy you like a fire destroys a forest. So we know what bad wisdom looks like, and we have a general vague idea of what good wisdom looks like. But James gets more... Uh, specific about the characteristics of the good wisdom that he's describing. He says this in verse 17. He says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And this is interesting because James calls this wisdom heavenly It's directly in opposition to the wisdom that he calls earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It could be said that this heavenly wisdom is spiritual and divine. It's the wisdom that comes only from knowing God. And he says that first and foremost, this heavenly wisdom is pure. Now, when the church talks about purity, we almost usually mean sexual purity. But purity is a lot broader than that. You see, the Greek word that he uses is the word agne, and it denotes having a purity of intention, whereas earthly wisdom has shifty intentions like selfish ambition, heavenly wisdom is pure. It means following God without any sort of mixed motivations. And in the context of Scripture, to be pure-hearted means to simply partake in the holiness that characterizes God. And for James, this purity of motive manifests itself in several different kinds of good behaviors. And he elaborates on this. First, it's peace-loving. It doesn't derive joy from conflict. That flies in the face of earthly wisdom because in our hearts, 
We love conflict. We want to assert our opinions and our positions into the lives of others who don't agree with us because we get a rush from conflict. And even if we sometimes like to avoid conflict, it's like a train wreck. You can't look away because our hearts are fascinated by it. And conflict is what governs the world, the way the world works. When you turn on the news, there's always conflict. There's Democrats versus Republicans, conservatives versus liberals, Ohio State versus Michigan, which is the better place. You see, that's the conflict coming out right there in the pulpit. I'm from Michigan. Go blue. And there you go. That's conflict coming out right there, okay? Next year, we'll see Batman go against Superman. We'll see Iron Man go against Captain America. And this Christmas, we'll see the Jedis take on the Sith. Y'all are excited. Don't be ashamed. We love conflict, but that's earthly. It's unspiritual, and it's demonic. Because heavenly people love peace. We don't seek conflict. We don't start conflict. We end conflict. And we always say that there's a better way in Christ. And some of you might say, you know, Ben, don't we need to fight for the Christian way and for Christian values? Let me ask you, who are you fighting against? Is it the fellow man whom God has created in his own image, whom you're called to love even if they disagree with you? Or is that your earthly wisdom getting the better of you? And as Christians, as people who follow the example of Jesus Christ, we shouldn't be people of the verbal or physical sword, but people of peace. And from there, James goes on to say that heavenly wisdom is considerate. Now, when we think of considerate, we often think of small things like holding the door open for somebody or chewing with your mouth closed or not drinking out of the milk carton or leaving the toilet seat down. Dudes, you know what I'm talking about. Those things may be be considerate, but when James uses the word, he means considerate to the max, okay? He means that you have a social conscience, that you care about social justice. Earthly wisdom says that you need to look out for number one and ignore the problems of others. But for James, heavenly wisdom is considerate of the issues in our society and fights for those who are in oppressive and harmful situations. James also says that heavenly wisdom is submissive. And when he says that, he means that heavenly wisdom means listening to instruction from others and listening to to criticism as well. And it's ingrained within us to think that we're right all the time and very few people have the authority to speak truth into our lives. But heavenly wisdom says, you know what? You need to submit to people who call you out on your shortcomings, all right? So heavenly wisdom is submissive to instruction and to criticism in the Christian walk. And James goes on to say that heavenly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. It's, it's impartial and it's sincere. So let's think about this. It's full of mercy, meaning it's loaded with compassion for people, which earthly wisdom is not. It's full of good fruit, meaning heavenly wisdom continually manifests itself in the good deeds that you do with love. And it's impartial. Remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about how we need to treat everyone with dignity and respect because everyone's created in the image of God. That's what James means when he says that heavenly wisdom is impartial. And finally, heavenly wisdom is sincere. With heavenly wisdom, you're not going to get something false or something mischievous or something dishonest. 
you're going to get the truth. It's honest. So heavenly wisdom is all those things. And just for kicks, let me tell you what earthly wisdom is all about based on the transverse of this, uh, of this verse. Earthly wisdom is, first of all, it's impure. It loves conflict. It doesn't consider the plight of others. It refuses to listen to instruction and criticism. It's filled with judgment and evil deeds. It plays favorites. And most of all, it's dishonest. So James cuts out two paths for us. The path of heavenly wisdom and the path of earthly wisdom. And he's exhorted those who consider themselves wise to show their heavenly wisdom by their works. So after he describes these two different kinds of wisdom, he says this in verse 18. He says, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now that still seems just a tad bit random, but let's think about it for a second. In James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, you know that Tim talked about last week, James describes the tongue and how false teachers are using their tongues for evil. And in this passage, he describes earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom and how heavenly wisdom loves peace and earthly wisdom is evil and loves conflict. And this sets up what we'll be seeing next week where James gets pretty bold and describes how sin and a lack of peacemaking is the root of all kinds of problems and conflicts that we have. So to recap, James contrasts earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom and says, if you think you're wise and you want to be known as wise, show it to me by your actions. So what does this mean for today? How can we bridge the gap between our passage and our context today? Well, number one, I think a key point is to discern what kind of wisdom you have, what kind of wisdom you embrace As Christians, it's way too easy to look at your life and say, I do pretty good for myself. But really, you really could be fooling yourself, all right? There's so many things in our world that earthly wisdom says is okay. It's it's okay to gossip. It's okay to be ambitious about your career while sacrificing your family. It's okay to despise political leaders. But God isn't interested in what's okay. He's interested in what's right. And it's up to you to examine your life and to find out those areas where you're practicing earthly wisdom instead of heavenly wisdom. And let me be a little blunt here, okay? Never be okay with where you're at with God. Because the moment you feel as though you can kind of put your spiritual life on cruise control is the moment your flesh takes over and finds a way to take you off the path that God has for you. And that's when you allow voices other than God's to speak to you and derail your Christian life. So never be okay with where you're at with God. The Christian life is a call to die to yourself daily so that you may find your life in Him. So how do you discern what kind of wisdom you have? I think it takes a sincere intentionality to read your Bible more, to pray more, and to be in fellowship with good Christian brothers and sisters who can keep you accountable And Paul says this in Colossians 3. He tells the Colossians to set their minds on things above instead of things below. And by that, he means that you need to ponder the beauty and the richness of the living God and how he wants you to live. As people who love Jesus, love one another, want to participate in the redemption of this world through Christ. And this community comes around you to keep you accountable in your walk. 
And my exhortation to you is that you need to look at your life and find those areas where you're embodying those characteristics of earthly wisdom, selfishness, jealousy, anger, and hate. Change. I know I do. Put to death those things that are keeping you from following Jesus with your entire life. Forget earthly wisdom and embrace heavenly wisdom. I think sometimes in the church, we're easily manipulated by the ways of culture. And I'm not talking about social issues or anything like that. I'm talking about how we sometimes act more worldly than we do Christian. We act more like people who don't know Jesus than people who get their life from Jesus. And as I mentioned, it takes immersing yourself in the word and in prayer and in good Christian community to form and shape you more and more into the image of Christ as someone who embraces the heavenly wisdom and lives it out with their entire lives. And I'll say this too. The wisdom of the kingdom attracts people to the kingdom. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The world needs the church to be the church. Because the church is the hope of the world. The gospel is what empowers us to live as people who bring heaven to earth. It's the cross of Christ and his resurrection that has made it possible for us to live holy, good lives. When we don't, like, when we don't act like we've been changed, no one wants to be a part of what we have. When we act like we don't know Jesus, people don't want to know Jesus either. As Christians, we're called to be countercultural in the best way possible. When the world says, look out for number one, we say, look out for others. When the world says, make your money and hoard it to buy all your toys, we say, make your money and use it to help others. When the world says, revenge is good, we say, forgiveness is infinitely better. And when the world says, put your career above everything else, we say, Put your Lord and Savior above everything else. Remember that story I was telling you at the beginning about how Carl Henry was asked to come on to NBC and, and address this controversy with televangelists? Well, according to my pastor friend who spoke at this conference, when NBC asked Carl Henry, Carl looked at his schedule. He told NBC, you know, I'd love to, but unfortunately I won't be able to because I have to teach a class that day. Sorry. Here was this theologian who shaped evangelicalism, who shaped you even if you don't know it. He could have catapulted himself to the national spotlight and made a name for himself outside the church. And what does he do? He says, sorry, I have a scheduling conflict. I have a commitment to my students first and foremost because that's what God has called me to do. Whereas earthly wisdom would have said, cancel your class. You have much more important things to do. Think about yourself. Put your career at the top. Heavenly wisdom won out and said, you need to be about the work that God has called you to do. One way made sense to the ambitious. The other way made sense to a godly man like Carl Henry. Heavenly wisdom isn't easy to follow. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can chop off the earthly wisdom, put on the heavenly wisdom, and model Jesus to a world that so desperately needs him. And that's what we celebrate right now. The fact that Christ came down from heaven, died on a cross, and rose again from the dead. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up here. 
And we're going to continue worshiping. And I invite you to take communion, to take the, the, the body of Christ represented by the bread and the blood of Christ represented by the juice. Just kind of renew your relationship with Jesus Christ. Remember all that he's done for you. And this is a significant marker of what heavenly wisdom looks like. You want to know what heavenly wisdom looks like? You look to Jesus, who laid down his life for his friends, who showed everybody a better way of how to live. This is heavenly wisdom personified. My challenge to you as a church is to personify that heavenly wisdom to a world that so needs it. The world needs the church to be the church because the church is the hope of the world. Let's act like we've been changed. You can stand with me and let's pray.